One plus one equals one. Welcome to Modern Family. The goal of this preaching series has been that we as God's family learn how to love each other more deeply with authentic compassion, moving towards one another in whatever season, stage, and situation we find ourselves in life. Today, we'd like to talk about the topic, uh, the life situation of divorce. A difficult topic. We want to begin with a story of divorce, and it's my honor to invite Rachel Maher up to share her story. Rachel is uh, the leader of our divorce care ministry, and you'll hear more about that in a moment. But Rachel, welcome. Thanks for coming up here and being willing to do this. Would you tell us your story, divorce? I wish that I wasn't the one telling this story. Um, I grew up in Colorado. I went to Bible college. I met my husband there. And from there, we um, decided to go to the mission field, went on deputation, had four beautiful children, moved to Brazil, where we served for 20 years as missionaries. And um, it became quite clear over the years that we weren't doing things actually together. I always thought that we had our preposition mixed up. I was doing everything for him. I was raising the kids for him. I was homeschooling for him. I was doing with ministry for him. And, And all that time, I really just wanted to do it with him and not feel like I was doing it all by myself. And uh, doing things for him um, gave him free time, too much free time, apparently, because uh, he was living a double life by the time we left the mission field. And I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't take people's support anymore, and the church encouraged us to come back to get counseling. But we're from that era where, you know, counseling? Who does that? You know, and so we didn't get counseling. He went back to sell our house in Brazil and, and moved in with his girlfriend, which was really devastating, devastating to the family and to me. And um, so we started our journey down a road that we had never anticipated and never wanted and never imagined would happen to me. And I got to tell you, it is, it's not fun. It's um, very devastating. And it's described like a tornado that goes wiping through your life and just Everything seems destroyed, and you don't actually just lose a person, you actually lose your life. And so it's a whole lot of losses and a whole lot of starting all over again, and it's a a very hard journey to be on. And Rachel, you have four children. Tell us about the impact uh, as a single parent, becoming a single parent, and then on your children. My children were, were, my youngest was still in high school, and my other three, two were in college. Um, it was very difficult for them because they actually got between us and, you know, they were the communicating between us and it, it, it was a very hard place for them to be in. And, and a lot of children feel like it's their fault and they, they assume that, 
But they also go through all of the different things that we go through, the anger, the, the feeling of abandonment, the rejection. There's just a whole lot of process that you have to go through, and it's, it's a difficult time for them also. And as we've talked about this, I've invited you to be very blunt on this next question with your family. What's it like to be a divorced person at a place like Waterstone? Well, it's not easy. By the time I came to Waterstone, I was already on my own again. But um, you sit in a sea of couples, and Betsy was talking about that last week, and you, um, you, can, you can react in several ways. Part of you wants to just go find another person, you know, so you're not sitting by yourself, and another man, I'm like, in, or, or you isolate yourself. And I, I kind of got into that little category of isolating myself because there's so much shame and so much disappointment in your life that you don't want to reach out. You don't, and you feel so needy anyway because of all the impact that's, that you're facing and going through at that point. Yeah, and that sometimes the church isn't very helpful. Tell us the story. Well, of- <laughs> Betsy had her story. I, I actually got, at one point, I was in a ladies Bible study and that was just huge support from me. But when we did some of our... Um, sermon programs where we divided into groups. Uh, I asked for a mixed group, and it was me and two other couples, and it just felt kind of weird, <laughs> okay? And then um, the second time I asked for a mixed group, I got the singles group, which I was just like, no, I'm not really single, but I was. But anyway, I didn't want to identify with that, and, but God used that. I've got some really wonderful friends from that yeah. experience. And, and now Jesus has put you back into ministry as you lead Divorce Care here at Waterstone. Tell us about Divorce Care. Divorce Care is a wonderful program. I am so excited about it. We, um, about half of the people that are coming to our Divorce Care are from the community, which is huge because I feel like I'm a missionary again. And uh, <laughs> um, it's just a super program that makes you face the ugly. It makes you face the anger, the loneliness, the rejection. Um, helps you. It gives you truth to, to grab onto, and um, it's just a, a really important part of of becoming whole again. Because you really don't need another person to completely. You are complete, and so it's a it's a process of becoming whole again. And it's just, um, I'm just really excited about it. And so instead of setting your friends up that have just gotten divorced with another person, send them to Divorce Care, okay? (laughs) That's my plug. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Rich. Can I say a prayer for you? Would you join me in prayer? So, Father, first of all, we just so much thank you for Rachel's courage. We affirm her for being willing to stand up here. And as she said, a place she never dreamed she would be for the courage to share this part of her journey with us. Thank you. And Lord, thank you for putting her back into ministry, for sharing the gospel of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins with our community. But Lord, being willing to walk in the, in the, the valley with uh, people who have gone through divorce. Um, thank you for giving Rachel comfort and then she being willing to give that comfort to others who need it to receive it from her. So, Lord, we pray your hand on the 11 that are in divorce care this semester, that you would be at work with healing, encouragement, strength for their journey. Bless Rachel and her team as they lead and serve and give. Thank you so much for Rachel. Amen. Thanks, Rachel. Let's begin by hearing Jesus 
address the topic of divorce, marriage and divorce. We're going to read from Matthew 19. We'll have it on the screen. Uh, Out of respect for the Lord, would you stand please as the, the word is read? Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I've approached this sermon this week with the deep anguish of a triple bind that you run into in trying to preach on divorce. The first bind is pain. The last thing I want to do is put more pain in your life, dump more guilt on you. Those of you who are divorced never dreamed you would be in the situation where you are today and never, ever could have imagined your children having to go through something like a divorce. For most of you, it was beyond your control. There was nothing you could have done to change it. And yet, what we're going to talk about today and and work with Jesus on this text, it's going to hurt. It's going to, again, pull a scab. It's going to press on a wound that you have. And some of you are going to leave here deeply hurt again. The second bind in preaching and divorce is what I would call a doctrinal bind. Some of you here are in a marriage that is the slow fires of misery, and you want out. And you're hoping that from something that's said today, there might just be an opening that you could leave. And my sense is you are not going to get that opening today. In fact, Jesus is probably going to call you to more deeply engage in the marriage that you're in. And you're going to leave here disappointed. The third bind in preaching on divorce is that our culture 
has normalized divorce such that in the culture it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal, divorce. Why would you give a sermon to it? Why would you spend so much time talking about it? I mean, our culture has literally changed the name of divorce. I was reading one of my favorite musicians is Chris uh, Smith from Coldplay. And as you may have heard, he's divorced his wife, Gwyneth Paltrow. And they released a statement uh, to the press and the Huffington Post carried it. This is how they describe their divorce. They call it conscious uncoupling. The recognition that not all marriages are meant to last forever and both parties deserve to leave whole and intact. Now the issue I have, though I still will always love Coldplay, is that last phrase, to leave whole and intact. I just don't see that happening when people go through a divorce. In fact, I, I see devastation. I, I see, as I sit with people here at Waterstone in our community going through divorce, I see Devastation, anger, anger, recovery emotion for usually some deep, deep hurt and th that goes on when, when a couple experiences divorce. I was reading last week, now I've never seen anyone at Waterstone do this, but a Swedish man whose wife filed for divorce. And so on the day he got the papers, he took every dollar in small bills out of his investment and banking accounts, $81,300, put them in a pile and burned them. And then he cut the pile in half, put the ashes in an envelope, mailed it to his wife with a note, happily I give you my half. That is a heart that's been devastated by divorce. The other place where we're beginning to see the devastation of divorce play out, and which is why we would push back on our culture who is trying to normalize divorce, is in the realm of children and studying the effects of divorce on children. Over the last two decades, there has been significant research come out in, in academia. One of these is a book I just want to look at briefly by Elizabeth Marcord called Between Two Worlds. She gives in her book uh, many uh, statistics, and so we'll give you uh, at least three of them here, about the impact of divorce on children. Twice as many children of divorce say they feel like a different person with each of their parents. More than three times as many children of divorce agreed with the statement, I was alone a lot as a child. The third statistic, two-thirds of kids from intact families went to a parent when they needed comfort. Only one-third of children of divorce did the same. They were more likely to turn to friends or siblings. And then Elizabeth Marcord, a scholar with the American Values Institute, but also a child of divorce, she almost turns to the first person here and begins to reflect on these statistics when she says, making sense of two ways of life is an active experience for married couples. When they divorced, our parents successfully separated their two identities, but we remained the bridge between them, seeking to make sense of two increasingly different ways of living as we forged identities of our own. In other words, after a divorce, the task that once belonged to the parents to make sense of their different worlds becomes the child's. The grown-ups can no longer manage the challenge, so the child is asked to try. And then she concludes near the end of the book, the idea that a good divorce is good for children is popular but we found 
that while an amicable divorce is better than a bad divorce, it is inaccurate and misleading to describe the children's experience as good. In other words, and this would be perhaps a heated question for your small groups this week, the evidence is saying that a lousy marriage for a child is better than a good divorce. What does Jesus have to say about marriage and divorce and the devastation? One of the questions I'm asking Jesus is what is it about marriage that makes divorce so hard? So let's enter the text. Jesus is being called into a theological debate uh, that was very popular in the ancient world and among uh, the, the Jewish pastors, Jesus' spiritual leaders, they're asking him for his views on divorce. And there was two main camps. The one camp uh, was that uh, divorce is not permissible except for marital unfaithfulness, except for adultery. And there was one group of pastors teaching the synagogues that direction. The other group of path Jewish rabbis were teaching the synagogues uh, for any cause, that you could divorce your wife for any reason. And this was the popular uh, setting of the culture as well. You could divorce your wife if she burnt your toast or burnt her looks. If you trade her in for a, a younger model, whatever it is, she just pleases you in any way, you can divorce her. And the pastors want to know, Jesus, where do you stand? Well, what's interesting is where Jesus enters the debate, and it's not immediately to the question. He goes back, as we'll see in verses 3 through 6, when he's asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? There's the debate. Jesus replied, haven't you read? And he goes back to define marriage. He wants to explain the reasons for divorce and the reasons it's so painful is because you first have to understand and know what marriage is. What's the essence of marriage? I mean, just because a person puts on a white coat does not make him a doctor, right? Just because, you know, a puppy has unconditional love, uh, that doesn't mean that's the definition of marriage, unconditional love. Just because they're reproducing a marriage, that doesn't define a marriage either. Rabbits do that. What makes a marriage? And Jesus starts there. Here's what makes a marriage. In the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and, and he's quoting from Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Do you see what Jesus is getting at? He's putting his cards on the table. The essence of marriage is one flesh. The two become a new reality of one flesh. And it's interesting when it says united to his wife, uh, the old King James, you may have heard in your wedding ceremony, cleave. A man will leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife. In the Hebrew, in Genesis, the word cleave literally means to make a vow. And so part of marriage is that you make a public vow and bring your full force of character behind it that you will, to the best of your abilities, fulfill your vow. And then what happens is that the sexual act that flows out of this vow is what uh, greases that vow. It's, it's what keeps that vow working. Every time a married couple has sex, they are retaking and recommitting to their marriage vows. That's why marriage 
and sex belong together. That's why next week Nick's going to preach on a theology of sex and unpack this further. I do want to give you a heads up, especially those of you who have children in the room. Next week, if you're not ready to talk to your child about sex, it would be a perfect week for you to take advantage of our Waterstone Kids Ministry. It won't be graphic or detailed, but it will be the whole morning about sex. So please keep that in mind. Do you understand, though, let's look at God kind of metaphorically defining marriage for us in the way that He approached Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 8, we read, God interacting with Israel later, I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. There's the sex. And I gave you my solemn oath. There's the vow. And entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Jesus is saying, here's the essence of marriage. It's a public vow, your character bringing you to live out that vow, and every time a married couple has sex, they retake their marriage vows. That's why married people have the best sex. No questions asked. So the other interesting thing, back to the Matthew passage, the Hebrew word is this idea of public vows uh, symbolized by sex. The, the Greek word, and the two will become one flesh, united, you're united to his wife, that word united literally means bond. Or in the Greek language, it literally means glue. And it's in the passive tense in the Greek, which means that the husband and wife are glued together by God. So whether you realize it or not, on the day you got married... God attended your wedding, and as you shared the vows, He glued you. And that's why, and this is amazing, at the end of it, He says, therefore what God has glued together, let no one separate. And this is really cool. And there's, in the Greek, there's a definite article before God. Usually God doesn't use the definite article, it's just God. But in this case, it literally reads, therefore what the God has joined together. And the idea there is he's magnifying God. In other words, we could translate it this way. Therefore, what the great God has joined together, let no mere human, including you, separate. God attended your marriage, your ceremony. He glued you together, the great God. And then he says, let no other person, including you, rip it apart. Now, Two implications. First, this explains the permanence of marriage. This is not some novel teaching coming from Jesus that's brand new. He's quoting Genesis. He is giving the spirit of Malachi where it says in Malachi, literally, and I quote God, I hate divorce. Now be clear. God's not saying I hate divorced people. He's saying I hate what divorce does to people. How it... it, it pulls hearts apart, how it affects children. I hate what divorce does to people and society. And so God has put this permanence that's in the the DNA of marriage. This is not novel for Jesus. He's living out the Genesis account. He's given the Malachi passion to what he believes about marriage. Marriage has been permanent as a human institution. It wasn't some Stone Age caveman stripping upon marriage and saying, oh, this looks like a good idea. Let's try it. No. Marriage has a hold on the human heart because he invented marriage on the same day he invented us. 
And therefore, the only way marriage will go away from our culture, even though our culture is pushing against it, even though in many ways our culture would like to outlaw it or unlaw it, marriage will only go away when God goes away. Because He's the one gluing marriage. He invented it. It has a hold on our heart. Explains the permanence of marriage. It also explains the pain of divorce. The permanence of marriage explains the pain of divorce. Jesus said in the text twice, it's one flesh. When a man and a woman marry, the two become one. It's a third reality. It's a one flesh reality. And so when you try to pull that apart, it is deeply painful. It is an amputation. You might survive it. You will survive it. But you are less in surviving it. It is not just a decision like changing your pants. It is losing a leg. When you pull apart a one flesh organism, that is done only with terrible pain. What God has glued together, let no one literally rip apart. It's devastating, that ripping. Divorce, it's sound. But the great God has joined together. Let no one rip apart. But there may be times when an amputation is necessary to survive. And now, understanding the essence of marriage, one flesh, Jesus now answers the question about divorce. We pick up in verse 7. His pastors come back at him now with the question, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. Notice that Jesus, first of all, has to correct their interpretation skills. He reminds them that Moses never, ever commanded a divorce. There's no commandment anywhere in the Bible that says you should get divorced. Moses permitted divorce because our hearts were hard. There's two implications to that. First, there's the design flaw here for why half marriages. That's a debatable statistics, but it's, it's at least 40% of marriages seem to end in divorce. The design flaw is not with marriage. The divine flaw is the concession to the human hearts. Our hearts are hard. In every marriage, when trouble comes, the first question that should enter our minds is, what are the grounds for forgiveness here? But often, the question is, what are the grounds for divorce? Our instinct from a hard heart is we want out. The design flaw is not with marriage, it's with the human heart. So Moses permitted divorce. It's also interesting that Jesus is leveling the table here. Because in Deuteronomy 24, which is where the, the verse is that you're arguing, the, Moses was saying that there may be something indecent in the wife, and then you could write a divorce, and the indecency would be sexual unfaithfulness. Notice that Jesus is turning the tables and says, look, this is about both men and women, and maybe more about men. 
in this text. Moses permitted you men to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So now Jesus is going to give us, in verse 9, His view of divorce. It's in this verse. One greater than Moses is here now. And that's why He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And let's talk now about the issue of divorce. There's two exceptions in the Scriptures as to why a couple may have to decide to amputate. Why there, there may be biblical grounds for a divorce. The first is in this phrase, sexual immorality. So anyone who divorces his wife commits adultery. It's a wrong decision. Except when there's been sexual immorality. That word, it's actually one word in the Greek. It's a word that you've heard. Porneia. From which we get pornography. It's literally sexual intercourse outside of marriage. That, because of the devastation that that does to a covenant and to a human heart, it may be that your marriage won't survive that. And in that case, divorce could be granted because of sexual immorality. But notice, it's permitted. It's not commanded. Our counsel would be that if that happens in your marriage and you pull us in, let us help. But that's not the first immediate decision, divorce. Let's ask some questions. Is there any way this could be salvaged? God intends marriage to be permanent. Is there any kind of rebuilding and repentance and, and, and reconciliation that could happen here? That's our, the Christian instinct. This is important. The Christian instinct is always keep covenant. Reconcile. That's our instinct. And we work for that first. But there may be situations because of sexual immorality where that is not possible. And therefore, divorce could be granted. In the second situation, it's Paul talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where we read, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. What is happening in Corinth is that uh, the gospel has entered a brand new culture and two unbelievers that were married, one of them gets saved, comes to Jesus. And you can imagine how that would like uh, disrupt a household. Uh, uh, there's a new person. The new Christian is a new creation. So you're not like married to the same person. And then this, this person goes around the house talking about another man. Jesus. So you can imagine how that would like shock a household. And Paul says in some cases, the unbelieving spouse may not be able to come to terms with that. And if not, let them go. Keep the peace. And you would be by implication, free to move on and remarry. Again, hopefully after a time of trying to work at it, process the Christian instincts of covenant keeping and reconciliation notwithstanding. If it cannot be reconciled, that could be a grounds for divorce. One thing I want to say there, that the unbeliever, the unbeliever there could mean, and I think does primarily mean, someone who professes to not know Jesus. And they won't love Jesus. But the unbeliever there also indicates someone who goes through a, a church discipline process. So it may be that there's a couple, one of the spouses has left, 
the church engages. They might have been a professing Christian, but the way they're acting, whether they're, ha- they're out having sexual immorality or whether they've just turned their back on the marriage, maybe even turned their back on Jesus, the church is going to be called to engage. We follow a process we'll put up for you. Uh, uh, Matthew 18, Jesus' process of reconciliation. You work through the process, but it may get to the end. See the last line. And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector an unbeliever. So a person could be an unbeliever and leave a marriage because they profess to not love Jesus, or they could be an unbeliever and leave the marriage because as a result of church discipline, they won't repent. And Jesus would say, if they won't repent after the process, treat them as an unbeliever. And in that case, there could be grounds for divorce. And let me add a 2A to this. So the first one is adultery. The second exception is desertion. Let me add a 2A to the idea of desertion. Another way that a spouse, and it works both ways, it could work both, a spouse deserts a marriage is by what we call domestic violence. If a spouse engages in physical abuse, and I think in some cases verbal abuse, which damages a soul, there is at least grounds for immediate separation. Because the highest good in any situation is for you to save your life and the lives of your children. And so if there's domestic violence going on in your home, get out. Get help. Leave. Protect your children. Protect your life. That's the highest good. Engage the church. Let's see if there can be any kind of transformation and repentance. And if there's not, then that would be desertion. The spouse is not willing to live with you. And even as a process of church discipline, if they won't change... They're an unbeliever, and we move on. So there's two grounds for divorce, adultery and desertion. Let me just briefly read some some grounds that I don't think are causes for divorce. Incompatibility does not break the marriage covenant. Irreconcilable differences do not break the covenant. Lack of passion or romance does not break the covenant. Loss of good looks does not break the covenant. (laughs) Thank God. Boredom does not break the covenant. Attraction to another person does not break the covenant. The desire to find yourself does not break the covenant. Fulfilling your potential does not break the covenant. A lack of happiness does not break the covenant. Constant conflict does not break the covenant. Driving me crazy does not break the covenant. So let me close with three applications of Jesus' view of marriage and divorce to hopefully everyone here in the room. First of all, if you're here and you're married, Jesus' word to you from this text is stay married. Divorce is worse. Stay married. Work on your marriage. Do it for your children. Can I just say pushing against our culture. 
that it is a noble thing for a couple to stay married for their children, even when their marriage is hard. It's noble. Do it for your children. Can I just say that often as I've observed divorce, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Stay married. Do you know the average divorce costs $15,000? Legal fees and what you'll lose, $15,000. May I suggest to you that you would take that money instead, and I've done the math, you could buy four years of weekly counseling for $15,000. And as we've said earlier in the series, Academic, longitudinal studies on marriages in crisis have found that if you make a three-year commitment to stay in your marriage and work on it, two-thirds of those couples go from unhappy to happy. Let's make the counselors richer than the lawyers. <laughs> the counselors in the room are clapping. So that's, that's... Stay married. And may I say to guard your heart against divorce. If you're in a hard spot and you're thinking about divorce, you're already leaking. Seal up that vow that you made. I remember one time Jan and I were in a, probably the most difficult spot we've been in in our marriage and we went to see a counselor. It was a very difficult counseling session with our counselor named Harv Powers. And as we were getting up to leave, Harv caught us like mid lift and said, wait, I've got one more thing to say to you. And he said to us, both of us, he said, you've made your vows, right? We said, right? And he said, so you're not going anywhere, right? Right. Those of you who are married and in a rough spot, you've made your vows, right? So you're not going anywhere, right? To those of you who are right now children of divorce, perhaps adult children of divorce, I just want to share a word that I believe is from Jesus to you. It's from a man named Tolian Chevichian, who's the grandson of Billy Graham. He's a pastor down in Florida. His parents, the daughter of Billy Graham, went through a divorce when Tolian was a young adult. He was wrestling with it, with the question why. He was feeling imprisoned. Could I have done anything different? What did I do? How did I contribute to my parents' divorce? Why didn't I see it? He happened to bump into a counselor who was working with his parents. Uh, it's a Colorado counselor by the name of Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb gave these words to Tullian to help him believe the gospel. Some of you children of divorce have to believe the gospel today. And here's what it is. The why is none of your concern. This is not your burden to fix or figure out. You are not responsible for your parents' relationship or their reputation or even your own reputation. Those are in God's hands and His ways are His, not ours. When it comes to God's will, the sooner you can get out of the conjecture business, the better. If you don't go to your grave confused, you don't go to your grave trusting. Painful as it is, the situation gives you an opportunity to show them grace, to love them in their brokenness in a new way, which is precisely what Jesus has done for you and continues to do for you. 
And then finally, to those of you in our family who have gone through divorce, the first thing I want to say to you who have experienced divorce is that you and I both know that the church has not often responded well to divorced people. Some of it is we just don't know what to do around a divorce, but most of it is we have this arrogance around us at church that divorced people who couldn't keep their marriage together are somehow second-class spiritual citizens, are somehow no longer cut out for ministry, and we have judged you. And that is wrong. Those of you who've been through a divorce, and all of us in the church need to see this, There's a passage in Jeremiah chapter 3 where God reveals something very important to us about Him. It's having to do with His relationship with Israel. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because all of her adulteries yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear she also went out and committed adultery do you understand what's revealed here is that God himself has experienced divorce and for any of us in this room who self-righteously look down on divorced people or call divorce the unpardonable sin or at least act like it is that also puts us in the enviable position of having to worship a divorced God. To those of you who've experienced divorce and have been hurt by the church, I ask your forgiveness for how we've treated you, how we've neglected you. I ask your forgiveness for when we felt we had to choose one of you to keep loving. And I ask for your forgiveness for not hearing the sounds of devastation in your heart telling you to move on. We were wrong. And we have not loved you as we should. Some of you here who are divorced are asking this question hearing what Jesus said and what Paul said about divorce, and you're thinking, wait, when I divorced, we weren't even thinking you know, about what God might have wanted or wanted said. We didn't ask the church for help. And if you take anything out of that Matthew 18 passage, it's this, you should never make the divorce decision as a Christian without the help of your church. Never. You need that counsel of church leadership. But you're saying, I, I didn't do any of that, and I made this divorce, and I, now I'm here and I'm divorced. What do I do? My answer to you is simply this. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If there's no chance of reconciliation, if things have moved on, you need to move on. You need to confess your sin. Take it to the cross. You need to repent. If you haven't, get your life back on track with God. And then trust the Gospel. And the Gospel means your sins, every one of them, is forgiven forgiven the seeds the divorce has been a death in your life but what happens when you plant the seeds of death they spring into new life it's called resurrection 
And God redeems life. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament of an ugly divorce, one of the ugliest you'll ever read about. But David and Bathsheba, when David literally killed a marriage by killing one of the partners, and out of this terrible marriage, David, this terrible divorce, David knee-deep in sin, he suddenly wakes up to, to what's happened. He realizes his sin. He confesses it. He gets back on track with God. Moves forward with his life. Walks in forgiveness and grace. And guess what happens? God redeems that marriage of David and Bathsheba because from that marriage comes a little cute guy you know, on the screen named Solomon. And do you know who comes from the line of Solomon? Yeah, you do know. Jesus. Jesus comes as a... a, a lineage of this legacy of divorce. Do you know what that means? you know what God's trying to tell us with that story? He's trying to tell us that He loves to redeem the worst situations in our lives. And then He says, try me. Try me. So those of you who are divorced, who never thought you'd be in this situation where you are, never thought your children would be hurting, you know, like this is maybe, forgive us, we're sorry, but your life is not over and divorce is not the last word. Believe the Gospel and watch God work from your worst. Out of that marriage, of David and Bathsheba, there was a great psalm of confession that I'd like to ask you to stand and we are going to pray together for all the worse in our life that need redeemed. We want to respond to the God who's saying, try me with these words. Would you read out loud with me? Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love, according to Your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For You know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against You and You only have I sinned and done what is evil in Your sight. So You are right in Your verdict and justified when You judge. Surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from Your presence or take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors Your ways so that sinners will turn back to You Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, You who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of Your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare Your praise. 
You do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen.